0: Hebrews chapter 4, last week I told you that we had come to a a transition point in our study of the book of Romans. We came to the 11th verse of chapter 5, and it's right at that point that the Apostle Paul turns his attention from dealing with the subject of sins plural, referring to specific deeds of unrighteousness that we have committed against God, and begins to speak of sin in the singular, as a principle, or a power, or a law like the law of gravity that is, is at work in our lives, producing those sins against god and in this transition paul is leaving the theme of justification by faith and he's moving to the realm of sanctification by faith in this case sanctify, sanctification meaning practical holiness but more than that meaning also life and vitality in jesus christ finding him to be the sufficiency of all of our need and so it's a great pivotal point in the book of romans and it's taking us into uh, an area of exposition and study that many people through the years have referred to as the spirit-filled life or The deeper life, or the higher life. See, how can it be deeper and higher at the same time? Well, if you're talking about delving deeply into God, it's the deeper life. If you're talking about living on an elevated plane of of victory and and abundance in Jesus Christ, it's the higher life. If you're talking about how you do that, on either end, it's the spirit-filled life. And throughout church history, um, various people have called it by different names depending on the perspective they were viewing this life at the moment. But we're moving into a realm that is, I'm going to call it the spiritual life, just to be ornery. No, not really. I'm going to call it the spiritual life because I think that's, uh, <laughs> this sounds arrogant instead of ornery, but I think it's a good biblical term. Uh, spirit-filled is also a biblical term, but, but it's spiritual as opposed to the carnal, the fleshly, the natural, the normal, the ho humdrum way that most people live their lives. And in preparation for moving into that arena of our experience with God. I want to spend a couple of Sundays, this and this week and next, and, and by the way, let me put a parenthesis in here while I'm thinking about it or I'll forget it again. I already forgot it once this morning. The last Sunday of the month, um, we are going to be celebrating our unity in Jesus Christ with all Attenders of our congregation. And on the last Sunday of the month, the the 30th, I believe it is, uh, we're going to have a combined service where Pastor Hector and I are um, going to be bringing a message in both Spanish and English. He's going to bring the Spanish part, and I'm going to bring the English part. And uh, we're going to be sharing that together. And uh, that's going to be just a time of just kind of celebrating our oneness in Jesus. Uh, I'm making that announcement for two reasons. I want you to get all excited and and plan to come to that and uh, and be prepared for it but if you're one of those individuals that has a really difficult time uh you know g- going back and forth in two different languages, the eight o'clock service will be on as usual, and it will all be in english so if if that really bothers you. That'll be a good Sunday to attend the 8 o'clock service, but uh, we want you to know what's coming so you can be planning for that. Uh, I think it's fun, and, uh, but I know that there, there are folks, uh, whether you speak Spanish or whether you speak English, that sometimes are challenged by those translated messages. But I, Hector and I are working on our sermon already, and um, we're, we're preparing for that. And uh, we're not going to use a lot of high-tech stuff, because then the only thing that can fail is our voices, and we're going to trust God for that. But the the high-tech stuff, we're going to leave out of the element this time. But anyway, parenthetically, okay, I said that, I'm done. This Sunday and next Sunday, I want to just talk in general about an overview, a a perspective, kind of surveying the scene of what this spiritual life is all about. And I want to do that this morning by turning to Hebrews chapter 4 and reading a passage where the writer of Hebrews is talking about this life of which I speak. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, if you'll follow with me in your Bibles. Therefore, let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, Any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has also himself rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now I want to focus our attention this morning on verse 10. And let me read it for you. I'm going to replace the pronoun uh, with its antecedent noun so we really understand it. For the one who has entered God's rest, has himself also rested from his own efforts, just as God rested from his efforts. The one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his own self-efforts. Now, in order to understand why the writer of Hebrews is writing this way, we need to review the audience to whom he writes remember from our study of hebrews that he is writing to a group of jewish believers they're they're jews who have come to faith in christ toward the the middle of the first century and they've been walking with christ for a while and it has become costly their faith is has put them at risk they're being persecuted in multiple ways Some of them have lost their jobs. Some of them have lost their family or fallen out of favor with their family. Some of them um, are being persecuted by the government. None of them are welcome any longer in the normal Jewish community that has not embraced Christ. And so... uh, struggling with financial need, with family rejection, with persecution and personal difficulties, they are considering possibly going back to Judaism and and returning to the synagogue and kind of giving up on this Christian way business. They're in danger of that. That's their temptation. The writer of Hebrews is writing to them to encourage them to move forward. And what he is saying to them is specifically intended to counter the the ruse, the, the trickery of the devil, saying, Judaism is really the foundation. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, Judaism is the shadow. It's, it's the precursor. It is the foreshadowing of things to come. All of the law and all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament point to Jesus. And, and if you turn away from Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. You can't go back because that's not reality. That's merely form and 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 shades of gray. It's just a shadow. Jesus is the person about whom all of the Old Testament speaks. So if you turn from Jesus, there is no more sacrifice for sin. There's not going to be another Messiah. There won't be any more hope. He is the promised one. And so they were in the crux of that dilemma. Dilemma. And there's one thing I really want us to connect with here as we we analyze why this passage occurs here and why it's important, is he is writing to Christians. He is writing to Jewish Christians, people who have already trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he is saying to them, there therefore remains a Sabbath rest. Be diligent, you Christians, to enter that rest through faith, lest you should come short of it. So I want to raise to you the, the idea that it is possible to be a Christian, to be a committed Christian, to suffer the loss of family and and position and, and prosperity for the name of Jesus and still not live in the rest of God. So there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not every Christian has entered into it. The second thing we need to understand in this Jewish framework is the importance and significance of Passover. Passover. Passover was the high point of the year. It was the most important celebration. To celebrate Passover was the number one focus of Jewish life in the nation. And the reason was because Passover was the remembrance of God's deliverance. They had lived in the land of Egypt in bondage and slavery under harsh taskmasters who who made life for them difficult and grueling and treacherous. And God delivered them mightily through Moses, leading them first of all into the wilderness where he gave them the law and the worship on Mount Sinai, and then leading them through Joshua to the promised land. And that whole journey of faith in God is what the Passover celebration was all about, that we have left Egypt and, and we are headed to the promised land and God has delivered us. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to them is you need to realize, friends, that Passover experience, though real and literal and historical and, and valuable, is only a picture of what God really intends to do in your life, personally and spiritually. And I am not making this up when I tell you that the, the Passover experience, the The deliverance from Egypt is a picture of spiritual truth. It's not allegorical. It really happened in time and space and history. But it foreshadows an event to come that is the reality of spiritual deliverance. When Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for our sin and rose from the grave to become our captain, the Lord of hosts on our behalf, He takes us from our bondage in Egypt, the land of sin. And he leads us through a wilderness path into the promised land that is a land flowing with milk and honey. A land that is full of riches and and great harvest and bounty. And if you can imagine what it was like for an Israelite who, who first of all is living in Egypt as a slave under harsh taskmasters, grueling burdensome every day, making bricks and and, and whatever for the, the building and construction of Egypt being the lowest of slave labor. That is your life in sin. You are in bondage to sin your master, and it has a grip on your life, like a taskmaster. And along comes the Deliverer, and the Red Sea is parted, and and we go through that baptism into Jesus Christ, and it leads us out of Canaan into that place where we can meet God at Sinai. But listen, friends, the wilderness is not where we're to live. Because there is Canaan land to come, and Canaan is that land of bounty and plenty and And it's true, the spy said, we observed two men carrying a cluster of grapes on a pole between them. It was so heavy. It's a land of amazing harvest and wonderful bounty. And Jesus said, I have come to give you life, and life in all of its abundance. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, many, many Christians... Remember last week, it was the analogy of, of getting that ticket to Six Flags and uh, going through the turnstile and then opening your little campstool and, and parking. And, and, and I got in, I got to Six Flags. But you didn't get ten feet past the entrance, and you never discovered anything that was there to enjoy. And many people live their Christian lives like that. Well, here's another analogy of the same thing. Many people leave Egypt. They leave the land of sin and bondage. They trust Christ as Lord and Savior. They leave that behind. They discover His deliverance. They have passed through the Red Sea, and now they're in the desert. Do you know what it's like to be in the desert? It's hot, for one thing, it's dry. God gave them manna from heaven, and we talk about how wonderful that is. And and I'm sure it was wonderful, but do you really want to eat the same thing every day for 40 years? Imagine having cream of wheat every meal for 40 years. Does that sound like an abundant life to you? It wasn't supposed to be. It was God's sustenance until they could get where they were going. How many of you have been to the beach? Raise your hand, this is the interactive part. How many of you have gotten sand in your sandals? How many of you have gotten sand in your bathing suit? (laughs) How many of you want to live like that every day? Beach is fun, but i, I got to get a shower and get the sand off, man. The desert is full of sand. Every day, every day, in everything. Talk to some of these soldiers who have come back from Iraq. Talk to Ann and Dewey, who live in Saudi Arabia. Sand in everything. Dust in everything. Man, the wilderness is not where we were designed to live. It is a transition. God provides for us in transit that we can come to Canaan's land full of prosperity. I'm not making this up. Paul recognizes that in Galatians. The writer of Hebrews recognizes that here. This is a type of foreshadowing of our spiritual walk. And there is a promised land waiting for us called the abundant life in Jesus Christ. And it's not characterized by sand and heat and dryness every day, even though God's provision is available. But it is characterized by milk and honey and, and, and grape clusters so large that it takes two people to carry them. It's characterized by fruits and vegetables that virtually grow themselves. It's a land of plenty. Many, many Christians never, ever discover that land. Jesus talked about the same thing when in John chapter 15, as John records his last communication with his disciples, Jesus said, You abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. And as you abide in me and I abide in you, you will be fruitful. That is a place of rest. The writer of Hebrews says there is a Sabbath rest that is still waiting for the people of God. And what, what characterizes that rest? Look at verse 10 in Hebrews 4, again, just for a moment. The one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works the one who has entered god's rest has himself rested from all of his works you know friends it was not an accident that man's first day on the planet was god's seventh day are you with me think about creation when were adam and eve created day two day four day five and a half they were made on the sixth day what part of the sixth day last part when god had done everything else he had prepared this incredible world marvelous planet full of lush vegetation planted a garden, populated the earth with birds and fish and animals and all kinds of fascinating things. Here's paradise. The last thing he did was he made Adam and Eve. That was Friday night in the creation week. And when they woke up the first day, of their existence in the planet was the sabbath rest of god that is not an accident the writer of hebrews draws that out in this passage god has spoken of a rest a sabbath rest where it says and six days he did his labor and creative work and on the seventh day he rested Why is that important to us? Does God need to rest? How many of you think God gets tired after six days of work and needs to rest? God doesn't need to rest. He has infinite power. There's no bounds to his energy. He never gets tired. The scripture says he never slumbers. He never sleeps. What's up with this rest business? That's not for His benefit, that's for our benefit. God wants us to know that we were designed to live in His leisure. We were designed to enjoy His rest. What happens when you have little children and, and they uh, want your attention? You know, What do they say to you? Stop it, Mommy. Stop it, Daddy. Come read to me. Come play with me. Stop your working and come play with me. I want your undivided attention, right? I don't say it in those terms. That's that's my interpretation. But you get the point. Little kids know that when you are occupied, they cannot have your focus. But if you will stop what you're doing and sit by them and read them a book, they have your undivided attention, you're at rest, they're having fun. God designed us to live in his leisure, in his rest. He wants us to enjoy his undivided attention in the Sabbath rest as we rest in him and he focuses upon us and it doesn't mean that that place in eden was without any kind of productivity god said be fruitful multiply fill the earth enjoy this garden eat all this food this is all for you and you know they had to pluck it and and maybe peel it i don't know if they peeled it maybe they just ate it and they had but they had to gather and they had to do things like that and and they had to but But when you compare that to real drudgery out there trying to grow wheat in the midst of a thistle field, you know, taking an orange off a tree is like nothing. It's just so simple. It's just living in the lap of luxury. God says, I've designed this for you to abide in my rest. And even though there is delight and joy and blessing there, and there is productivity in there, it's almost effortless compared to what it's like when you're out there outside the garden doing it on your own. Some people think work is the curse of sin. It's not work, it's the thistles and thorns that was the curse. The work was meant to be enjoyed in the lap of God's rest. It's outside the garden that it becomes personal and grueling and challenging. But in in his presence, it's joy. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Abide in me, and I in you. Same picture in John 15. Resting in Christ. What does the branch have to do to abide in the vine? Just hang there, right? I mean, how, how hard can it be to abide in the vine? You know, you almost have to work at not abiding if you're a branch. Somebody has to cut you off. Branches just hang on vines. You, You see that, right? I realize this is incredibly simple, but we want to make it really difficult because we want to take these simple illustrations and turn them into deep, intricate theological challenges. Jesus is giving us a picture. He says, look at a vine. I'm the vine. Look at the vine. Here's the trunk of the vine. Here's its primary shoots going out in the vineyard. Look at the branches. What do they do? They hang there. Hang in me. If you hang out in me, you will bear fruit. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand what happens when the branch isn't connected to the vine. It shrivels up. Most of us live our Christian lives trying to lop ourselves off from the vine, run out in the sun, and try to be fruitful. And while we're shriveling up and and drying out in the sun, we're trying to produce grapes. And and we we, we get what we're worth in that case. Jesus says, hang out in me, abide in me, rest in me, and I will be fruitful through you. I will fill your life with fruitfulness as you abide in me we want to make a big difficult thing out of this whole rest business what is rest don't don't give me a not working thank you don't give me a theological definition give me a simple one if you're working out in your yard on saturday and you're trimming and weeding and mowing and and getting your yard all trimmed up and then you go inside and sit down do you know the difference between work and rest it's not hard resting is when you're sitting working is when you're out there pulling weeds there is a sabbath rest for the people of god we have this kind of overstuffed leather recliner in our loft area and boy sitting in that thing is just wonderful it's 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 soft and it's smooth and it just kind of envelops you and I can sit in that thing and turn the ceiling fan on. and It's great for sleeping. It works okay for reading for a while, but, but it is fantastic for sleeping. And I know the difference in working in the yard and resting in that recliner. Okay, there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Just take the image and carry it into your spiritual life. God wants you to just settle back in him, just rest in him, just kind of snuggle down and let him hold you up as he sustains and refreshes and strengthens you. Jesus gives the image in the vine, Paul gives the image in Ephesians. You know an outline is is a is a tool that we use to kind of simplify Uh, maybe a book or a speech or whatever we we put the main points down and we try to put it in order and kind of hang it on a framework that will be easy to remember how many of you in a bible study have ever outlined a book of the bible you can raise your hand this is another interactive part you've outlined a book of the bible okay a good outline Captures the main points in the simplest way that you can get a mental hook on what's there, right? Watchman Nee outlined the book of Ephesians in three words: Sit, walk, stand. And he said Ephesians one to three is sit, Ephesians four to six and a half is walk, and Ephesians six and a half to the end is stand. And that's the outline of the book of Ephesians. What was he telling us? That the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians is explaining to us this spiritual life. And where do you begin the Christian life, the abundant life in Jesus Christ? By sitting down. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, "...we have been raised with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus." That's where we begin our Christian life, seated with Christ. As you are seated in Him, refreshed in Him, filled in Him, as He is in you, then you are able to walk in Him. And in chapter 4, he makes that transition. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your great high calling. Now we can walk after we have learned to sit. And when we walk, we find there's resistance and opposition to our life. We do have an enemy. And he says, when you encounter that opposition, just stand. Just stand and stand in Christ, in the fullness of his armor and everything that he's given you. Just stand firm. Let (coughs) Jesus handle the problem. Friends, most Christians live their Christian lives this way. They go out and they try to run. They don't try to walk. They try to run. They try to, to do stuff for God. They try to get involved. They try to get busy. They try to go, 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 go. And, and they're going to they're gonna conquer this thing. You know, they're going great, to do great exploits for God. And they're out there working away. And then the devil hits them and smack. They fall over. Lying down is not in the book of Ephesians. But that's what they are. They're lying in the mud. Man, what, ha- what happened to me? And they've never yet sat. The whole point of this spirit-filled life is learning the secret of resting, abiding, sitting in Jesus and finding him to be the sufficiency And the fullness and the power and the grace for everything that's needful. And I will tell you the truth. I don't have a statistical analysis, but I'm just going to throw out a number by observation. I think that 99%, particularly of Western Christians, never get it. They live their whole Christian life, and they never understand what we're talking about this morning. And even people who can put it into words, they can articulate it, still betray by their lives that even though they've read some books and they've got some stuff up here, they don't have it here in their heart they're still missing the secret of abiding and living in Jesus Christ. The spiritual life in the Sabbath rest of God affects our lives in three very profound ways. And I want to tell you right out at the outset, one of the reasons why I know that most Christians don't get it is they miss the first one, which is the main one. Why did God save you? Why did he send Jesus to die on the cross for you? Why did he go to all this trouble to redeem you? So he could make you a good person again. So he could get a lot of work out of you in the kingdom. So he could build churches through you. Most Christians think that's the goal. The reason God sent Christ to pay the price for your sin, the reason he died to save you, was so that he could bring you home to his heart. Relationship with God, intimacy with God, is the goal. It is the number one objective of God. He wants you to come home to him. Let me tell you something that may surprise you. God misses those walks in the garden in the cool of the day. With his man and woman and his whole point his whole point in saving you was so he could have that stroll with you in the cool of the day and friends most believers spend all their life and energy trying to make themselves good trying to do good works trying to say thank you, God, for saving me. I'm going to do all these great programs for you. I'm going to get involved in all these great works and ministries for you. I'm going to do all this stuff for you. That I'm going to be so busy that I can't even think about you, but that's okay because one day I'll get to heaven and then we'll talk, okay? But I'm busy right now trying to get holy and trying to get service in. And then there's another agenda that creeps in there too. Oh, by the way. Since I'm doing all this stuff for you, would you mind just answering a few prayers for me, okay? I mean, I really would like to get you to, to, to fix a few things in my life. I need you to tweak some stuff because I'm really frustrated and there's some things I would like repaired. So would you do uh, a little healing here and I want you to do a little uh, fixing the relationships over here and I, and I want you to straighten that person out because they really frustrate me. Could you just do that, God? Because, look, I'm working for you, man. That sounds absurd the way I'm saying it, but you know what? That's where most Western Christians live. I say Western because it's not that way all over the world. There's some places where the rubber's already hit the road, and their lives are on the line for Jesus. They don't have anything to be too worried about, and and they're down to, to the bedrock of just getting by and they have discovered that Jesus is enough but we're still kind of sitting back here in the lap of luxury and we're saying hey man I'm working for God I'm trying to be good now God do some things for me and that's the game it is not the game he saved you so he could spend time with you he loves you he wants to walk with you and talk with you. I mean, can you imagine, let's, let's take a walk with him back in the garden. Let's go for a stroll with Adam, okay? Hey, you see that long-legged thing over there with a the long skinny neck? What do you think about that? Oh, that is man, that's neat. Look at those funny things on its head. What are, what are they? Well, Adam, what would you like to call that? I think I'll call that a giraffe. Okay, I like that. Let's call that a giraffe. Does that sound spiritual to you? There is nothing more spiritual than hanging out with God, having a walk with Him, paying attention to what He's doing, getting excited about His His creativity, His power, His glory, His majesty. Saying, wow, God, that is so cool. Man, that's neat. That is worship. And God says, boy, I I just really like these walks we're doing. I love this. Some of you are wondering right now, why would God want to do that? Why would God want to hang out with me? Why would he want to spend all that? I, I, thought, I thought he wanted me to build churches, you know, and, 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 and work in, uh, lead small groups, and do Awana, and teach classes. And, and I thought that was the goal. And, and, and get rid of all my bad habits and, and be good. I thought that was what it was all about. No, that's not your job. It's all about loving him. And why does he want to hang out with you? This is a real surprise. We read it on almost every page of Scripture, and we don't get it. God so loved Doug Peterson, Dave Madden, Peggy Linton, Anne Marie White. God so loved. So loved them that he gave his only son, that they could have life and come back. Paid the price for sin, poured his wrath out on the cross on Jesus, cleansed us, clothed us in righteousness, that we could stand in his presence without distressing his holiness so that he could lavish his love upon us why because he loves us when are we going to realize God doesn't need us but he wants us what a huge difference friends the focus of the spirit-filled life is first of all having a relationship with God that is intimate and personal and close and characterized by just hanging out with him loving him enjoying him he loves you and if that comes as a surprise to you ask him to make it clear he loves you you say i'm such a mess i get so much wrong i am always failing he knows that you don't ever take him by surprise you're never going to do something and hear god go oh my goodness i never thought it's like i know your frame i've already got that stuff under control i just want to walk with you that's the first thing we got to get that and people can say that but you just start listening to them talk and and you find out they're on a different path they start talking about service they start talking about sin problems they start talking about All this other stuff, and and they've missed it. But, the second thing is, and you knew I was going to get there, I guess. The second profound truth about the spiritual life is that it does include spiritual victory. There is victory in Canaan over the powers of evil there is victory in the abundant life over the power of sin you can walk with God and experience the victory and the power of his spirit living in you you know why because when you're in intimate relationship with God and you're walking with him and you're having this this close fellowship he has already written his character on your heart He has built it into you, and he has given you his spirit now to bring that to life and to apply it in every situation. And as you cruise down the path together, the Holy Spirit is there to apply the character of God when you encounter different kinds of things. And he says, he brings to our mind, don't do this, do this. I mean, we don't have to worry about memorizing it all. Don't misinterpret that. But it's not that we've got to, okay, I've got to keep all the rules to make God happy. But it's I'm walking with God. He's going to tell me what I need to know. And when I encounter that thing, He's going to give me the power to be obedient. And as I surrender to Him, He will fulfill it through me. Romans 8, 1. That in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and never will do, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in you, through you, not by you, but through you, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So there is Victory. Are you hung up on a sin problem? Turn it over to Jesus. There's victory. If you're resting, who's got the load? He does. Give it to him. Don't try to take this thing yourself. Say, man, I've got this horrible habit. I just can't get over it. Give it to Jesus. Take it there and leave it there. Let him have it. We think sanctification, being practically holy and godly, is our responsibility. Read the Bible. Jesus Christ has been made to us. Wisdom, righteousness, truth, sanctification. He is my hope. He is my sanctification. It's not my problem. It's his problem to make me holy. That's not my job. That's his job. He will do that. Now, if you find that difficult to believe... I encourage you to try. Come to Jesus and give him a problem that you have and ask him to take care of it. And then leave it in his hands. Don't worry about it. He will take care of it. If, you're, if you have truly come to Christ, you're not going to go off the deep end and end up in some skid row dump somewhere, mired down in, in your problems. Jesus is going to deal with you in his power and his strength. That's his job. And he will do that by his spirit. The other thing that's true is there is powerful and effective service. Since God is now doing the work, he gets results. I go back to the the vine and the branch. We're like those branches, you know. We kind of connect with God for about ten minutes. You know, we sort of cut this notch in the vine and graft ourselves in. We just kind of sit there and suck the sap for about ten minutes. And then we jump off and go springing out in the desert separate from the vine trying to be fruitful. And you just dry up. You just wear out. You get frustrated. There's no fruit and your leaves start falling off and you say, "What's the deal?" I'm having my quiet time. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing this stuff for God. Why am I so tired? Why am I so frustrated? Why don't I see any fruit? Why is this wearing me out? Because you're not abiding. You just plug it in periodically. But you're not abiding. You rest in him. He flows through you. When he flows through you, fruit comes out the end. There's a problem with that, though. Branches bear fruit where the vine is. if you want to bear fruit somewhere else because you, you you really like being over there instead of over here, you're going to have a problem. Because you can only bear fruit where Jesus is. You know, you can't go out and pick, pick your own, oh, I, I think I want to do that. Well, you're going to have trouble over there because the vine's not over there right now. For you, the vine is here. I'm not talking about churches or localities. You know what I'm saying. You've got to be where Jesus is at work in your life to abide in him. You can't go do your own thing. And the people have trouble with that because they want to do their own thing. But if you're abiding in him, there's power, there's fruit. And you know what? You're resting in Jesus. You're just kind of hanging out there. And he just does stuff. That's pretty fascinating. Because he can do that. Well, I, I want to conclude by just mentioning a couple of things. And we're going to pick up this thread next week. But the spiritual life is well attested. But it is little understood. And even less experienced. There are a lot of reasons for that. But. I think one of the things, the minute we start talking about a spirit-filled life, or being filled with the spirit, or the deeper life, or the higher life, sometimes people get nervous and anxious. They think that you're ready to cart them off into some hyper-Pentecostalism where they're going to be jumping pews and babbling in strange tongues and doing all kinds of, of things that they didn't think they would ever do. And... Or, or they, get, they get frightened because there's some mystery here, or, or they're going off in some realm that's scary, and, and uh, where, what's, where's Martin's head anyway? I mean, what's he talking about, leaving all this stuff up to God? But friends, I want you to know that, that what I am preaching this morning, and what I intend to preach next week, and in Romans for weeks to come, is a message that has run through the course of church history it is not limited by denominations or disciplines it is not limited by theological persuasions it's amazing how many people have discovered this this wonderful spiritual life that I'm talking about that have come out of Wesleyanism and Arminianism and Calvinism and, and all kinds of isms. They've come from all kinds of backgrounds. And that ha- in, the, in the final analysis, knowing Jesus has become so preeminent that all that other stuff took a back seat as they focused on him. V. Raymond Edmond wrote a book called They Found the Secret. It's the stories of people who have found this life I'm talking to you about. It's their testimony of how they came to a crisis moment in their life where they were wore out with self-effort, tired of fighting sin and losing, exhausted with their spiritual experience, and came to a discovery that I can rest in Jesus Christ and abide in him, and he will be in me everything that is needed for life and godliness. And as, as V. Raymond Edmond describes this, first of all, do you know who V. Raymond Edmond is? He was the president of Wheaton College from 1940 to 1965. He trained at our own Nyack Missionary Training Institute, which was what we called NIAC Seminary back in those days. In the early part of the century, he was a missionary. He came out of that whole movement and experience of the deeper life. But he was the president of Wheaton College. Wheaton College is like the bedrock of middle-of-the-road, tried-and-true, solid evangelicalism. And and from that perspective, he writes about people like Hudson Taylor, John Bunyan, Amy Carmichael, Oswald Chambers, Charles Finney, Richard Halverson, Francis Ridley Havergal, John Hyde, Dwight Moody, H.C.J. Mool, Andrew Murray, Robert Nicholas, William Nicholson, Eugenia Price, Walter Wilson, Ian Thomas, people that many of you have heard about. These are people that have discovered what I'm talking about. They're not in some wild and crazy offshoot of the faith. They're right in the middle of some of the most powerful movements of God in the history of the church. Because they discovered what it was like to abide in Christ and let his fruitfulness flow through them. And I guarantee you, he does a better job than we could ever dream of doing. Andrew Murray wrote a book called The Believer's New Covenant. He wrote many books, but this is one of them. And this focuses on that that very that very thing of coming into this new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, whereby he endeavors to do the sanctifying and the working while we abide and rest in him. A fellow by the name of Paul King, who is part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, similarly writes a book of testimonies of people who have come to this experience in their life where they entered the rest of god and discovered an abundant christian life out in front of them people like george muller hudson taylor charles spurgeon a british baptist phoebe palmer hannah whitehall smith e.m bounds andrew murray A.V. simpson oswald chambers amy carmichael john mcmillan a.w tozer these aren't weird weirdos these are the people right in the middle of the faith that through the centuries, through the years, most of these in recent times, but going back to, to, to Fenelon and uh, Savonarola and the history of the Catholic Church before the Reformation and in that period of time, and um, Madame Jeanne de la and some of those great people who experienced God, Brother Lawrence, in the depths of their experience, discovered this. There is a wonderful, abundant life awaiting us in Jesus. And you don't have to get weird to get it. You just have to get Jesus. It is least understood in present-day Western Christianity because a key feature is the absence of self-reliance through natural fleshly programs and solutions to church ministry and growth, personal, emotional, and sin problems. Let me tell you something about the church at Laodicea. It did not understand the deeper life. Do you know why? Because it didn't think it needed anything. And if there was ever a time in church history when a church was like the Laodicean church, it is the Western church in America today. We are rich and think we have need of nothing. And we do not know that we are poor and blind and naked and in desperate need of Jesus. Come to him and buy salve. Come to him and buy garments that are white. We are in trouble and we don't know it. We got church growth programs, we got programs for the church. We got how to grow, how to build, how to assimilate, how to bring people in. We've got a program for everything. We don't need Jesus to work through us. We have a program to work for him. We can build the church by going to church growth seminars. We can improve the church by 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 learning methods and means. We can promote the church by marketing the church we can take courses in this you got sin problems we have we have christian psychology we have we have taken freud and uh, and uh, adler and and some of these other people and we have baptized them and made them jesus people and now we have taken their methods and and we can we can fix people now We're, we're enlightened. We have Western comprehension and understanding. We're of the Enlightenment era. We have scientific theory and we know what we're doing. We can deal with psychological problems. We can deal with addictive disorders. We can deal with behavioral disorders. We can, we can handle all this stuff. We know how to do this. God will do it for you. We'll do it in the church. We'll do it in the name of the church. We'll, we'll run this program for you and fix folks up. You can't have the spiritual life if that's your attitude. Because guess what? You can't do it. can't do it now. You never will. You don't have the power to change a heart. Boy, nobody knows that better than I do. I've talked to people all my adult life. And I have never changed one of them. But man, is it fun when i see god get a hold of them boy what he can do he can do in 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 about a half a second what i can't teach people to do in a year of weekly meetings just turn on the light and wow things change it's like man god is really good i can't do that no i can't never could Neither can you. But it's amazing what he can do. But until you know your need, you are poor and blind and naked. Until you realize where you are, you will not even know to ask. Friends, we think we've got it figured out. That's why we don't understand it. And finally, it's least desired because it does involve a death to oneself, to the natural fleshly nature expressed even in worship and christian service you know it's not just that we do sin our way that's the only way to do sin by the way but we even try to do worship our way we even try to do service our way we even try to to live for god our way And one of the things that having a spiritual life requires is that you put your life on the altar, that God can resurrect his life in you. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You see me walking and talking. But not I. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up on my behalf. I am crucified, but he is alive. There is a dying to self that has to occur. And we get hung up on that because you know what? We want what we want. And when you're walking with God, he wants to lead the walk. And if you want to take a different road, you're going to have a tough time getting him to follow. But there is an abundant life for those who want to live in Jesus. It's not strange, it's not odd, it's not weird. But it is different from what most of us know. And it's a life of rest in him. A life of drawing from his life. A life full of Jesus. A life fixed on him. Where he does the work and we enjoy the benefit. And if that's the kind of life you're looking for, hang in there with me. We're going to be looking at it in the word in the weeks to come. Father, open our eyes. Create a hunger in our hearts. Wet our appetite spiritually. For everyone here, Lord, that is thirsty in spirit. For everyone here that is weary and worn, come to the fountain. There's fullness in Jesus. All that you're looking for, come and be filled. Because you've promised, Lord Jesus, to pour water on the one who is thirsty. You've promised to pour floods upon the dry grounds. You've promised to give us that life. You weren't mocking us when you said, I've come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. You weren't mocking us when you said, abide in me, and I will abide in you, and through you bear much fruit. You weren't mocking us when you invited us to rest in your presence. From Genesis chapter 1 to the end of Revelation, you've said it every way you know to say it. Life is in Jesus. Rest in the leisure of God. Bring us to that place, O God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.